Good morning. My name is Pastor Nate. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Matthew 18. As we continue in our sermon series looking at the marks of a healthy church, we're going to be looking at one of those fun subjects called discipline. Yeah, ouch. (laughs) Let's pray first as we continue to worship God. Father God, I just thank you for today. I thank you for the sun that is shining brightly. I thank you for this new season that we're entering into. Uh, This morning I was reminded of your creation as I even heard the birds chirping. Lord, I just thank you so much. I thank you for your grace and your mercy that you poured out on on my life, on each of our lives that allows us to come together, to be a family, to worship, to lift your name up high. Lord, I pray right now for our teachers who are teaching our children. May you use them in a mighty way. God, our children are a gift to us. And our responsibility as both parents and the church to raise them up in the way of the Lord. Lord, may you use these teachers to call these kids to yourselves so that they may grow to be men and women who love and adore you with everything that they have. Lord, I pray as we continue to worship you that I would indeed preach so that you are glorified. Lord, I pray that I would speak of you and praise your name. Lord, it's no gifting that can make this turn out well outside of you, so by your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon for your glory, the joy of your people, and the salvation of the lost. And amen. So, Matthew 18, 15, verse 15 says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two other brothers along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. These are, this is the word of the Lord. More specifically, these are the words of Jesus. I remember as I was reflecting on this passage in grade seven, I had this wonderful teacher. I'm being a little sarcastic. Um, I'm sure she was a good teacher, but when I was in grade seven, I didn't think so. Uh, Mrs. I'm not going to say her name. I don't know where she is right now, so I better be careful. Uh, we got a project. I went to a private school, an elementary school, a Christian school. So we got a project. And one of the, pro- the project was I had to write a biography on a great, great missionary named Hudson Taylor. If you know your church history, God used him in a mighty way. Actually, he didn't see any fruit of his labors. Um, but God still used him in a mighty way. It wasn't until after his death that the China saw a great revival. 
And a lot of what we see today in China is because of what he did. But I remember writing this project on Hudson Taylor. It was a, and um, I decided to uh, not write it. And I thought that I could get away with not writing it. Um, and and so you know the date came by, the due date came by, and like a month later, maybe two months, I don't remember exactly. Suddenly, my mom comes and talks to me and says, "What about this project that you're supposed to do?" I was like, "Oh, you know, I don't, I don't really need to do it, you know, like whatever." My mom made me sit down for the whole Saturday. It was like the first day of spring. It was beautiful. I was sitting there. I can still picture it to this day. I'm sitting there at this desk in my parents' house. There's a window right there beside me. And I'm like, oh. What a, it was awful. It was a beautiful day outside. And I was, I was prepared to sacrifice writing that report so that I could play outside. But my mom, God bless her heart, said she would have none of that. And I had to sit there all weekend writing this report on Hudson Taylor. Here's the thing. There's no one in this world that likes to be disciplined. Right? There's no one. If you're a kid or an adult or anybody, nobody likes to be forced to do something that you should have done. But think about it. Would it have been for my good if my mom didn't address that problem? If I didn't write that report? When did discipline become such a bad thing? Because many of us, where we are today, wouldn't have, if it's not for some form of discipline, we wouldn't be where we are. You went to school. You studied hard. You got your job. Maybe you left that career and got another job. You know, We wouldn't be where we are without being disciplined. But suddenly we have this mentality in our head that discipline is a bad thing, but God actually uses it in a very positive thing. And in Matthew, we see what Jesus is talking about right here in Matthew 18. In this passage, we see just before it, Jesus does the parable of the lost sheep. And it's interesting that the, 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 the context of it moves from the lost sheep into this idea of church discipline. They're tied together. Because here's Jesus, and he's going to give up every, all the other sheep, and he's going to go find that one last sheep, the lost one. And he's going to do whatever he has to do to get there. And then the passage moves into church discipline. And the question really remains for you and for me is, what are we willing to do to find that lost sheep? Because that's what church discipline is really about. Here's Jesus seeking to restore that one last sheep into the fold. And then he begins to address the local church and members who are caught in habitual sin. So what is church discipline? And I'm going to say this to you. I don't know. uh, I would say I've only seen this done well once. My whole time. I grew up in the church. Most of the time, churches get this wrong. And I think it's really because they neglect what God has said in his word. Church discipline is important, and it should be done. But just as important is how it's done and the motives behind it. So here, let's talk about this. What is it? In the broadest sense, church discipline is everything, literally everything. The church does to help its members pursue holiness and fight sin. 
preaching, the teaching, the praying, the corporate worship, the accountability relationships, the godly oversight by pastors and and church leaders are all forms of discipline. In In a narrower sense, church discipline is the act of correcting sin in the life of the church body, including, and we never want it, that final step of excluding a professing Christian from membership in the church and participating even in the Lord's Supper because of serious unrepented sin. And we see this not only in Matthew 18, but we also see in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13. So church discipline is really an aspect of discipleship. Think about it. Discipleship, we teach people to obey all that God has commanded them to do, Right? But on the flip side, we can't just teach, we also have to correct. We say, we say this with children all the time. We not only teach them everything that they need to know so that they can succeed in life, but we also correct them. No, that's not the best way to go. Like my mom, forcing me to sit there and write this report. It was awful. We have to do both. In that final stage of church discipline, it's that formal public act of excluding a professing Christian from church membership. But we've got to understand the why we do this. We do this because church discipline is everything that church does to help its members pursue holiness and fight sin because we love one another. We want people to grow in Christ, do we not? We want them to grow, have a deeper relation with God. This is what we want. We want to to glorify him and emulate him more and, and shine brighter for him in our community, in our workplaces, in our schools. And we can't do that unless we pursue holiness and fight sin. This is why it's so important to be in relationships with one another that are based on this so that we can come up to someone and say, smack them across the head and say, what are you doing? That's not right. That's not what God calls us to do. That's not a right attitude. That's gossip. That's sin. Stop doing that. Or whatever it else may be. We see Jesus laying out this process for us in, in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. So let's talk about not only what, is it, what it is, but where does it talk about in the Bible? And we're going to focus specifically on Matthew 18. And it comes out in three stages. Jesus addresses this in three stages. So the first stage is in verse 15 where he says this, If your brother sins against you, brother... Oh man, that's a strong strong word. No, that's talking about community. It's talking about family. If your brother sins against you... Notice it doesn't say if he hurts your feelings. Sins. Although, you should talk to people if they hurt your feelings too. But specifically, we're talking about sins against you. First, sin is an act against God. This isn't something trivial or personal in nature. This is a sin that also includes with God. So what we're talking about with sin in this passage What are we talking about is this, that sin must have an outward manifestation. A mere suspicion of pride or greed does not lead to formal discipline, okay? It's something that I can say, I can see, I see it in you. I've heard you talking about it. 
we need to address this. The sin must be serious. A brother who exaggerates the details of a story should not be exposed to form, formal public exclusion. It's like we would have to like, let every fisherman go. Right? Because when was the last time you heard a fisherman tell a true story about the fish they caught? <laughs> Never. Oh, it was this big, Pastor. No, no, it wasn't. That, that lake's not even big enough for that big. Let's go. Yeah. They put up a great fight. Really? It must be a serious sin. A sin must be unrepented. If someone is refusing to be obedient to God's commands, he is prizing his sin more than he is prizing Jesus. That's the reality of it. If someone comes to me and says, yeah, I, I know that that's a sin, but you literally just told me that you love that sin more than you love your Savior, Jesus Christ. The very one who died for your sins and three days later rose again. That's what you just told me. Repentance is not saying you're sorry and continuing to do the same thing. Repentance is turning away from sin and self and looking to God for forgiveness and salvation. The Old Testament uses the word turn or turning to describe repentance. Those who repent turn their backs on their sin and come around to seek God. Repentance is the conviction of guilt before God and the awareness that we are stained and need to be cleaned. This isn't something we do, but it is something God works in us. Like faith, it is necessary, but given to us. Not worked by us, but rather God works in us an inward acknowledgement of that guilt which causes us to shrink away from it and to turn from it. One of my greatest, greatest pet peeves, and this is like a Canadian thing, right, to say you're sorry. Like everyone says you're sorry. There's, you're smirking because you know it's true. And we always, we go, we bump into someone, we say we're sorry. Do you know the word sorry actually is from sorrowful? So literally you bumped into someone, you're just like, oh, I'm so sorrowful for that. Really, are you? And I do this too because it's cultural and it's habitual. But what bugs me the most is when someone comes to me and says, I'm sorry for doing this, but they continue to do it. That means you're not sorry. You just lied to me again. We need to be repentant. We're talking about unrepented sin here. And then he comes along and he says, Go and tell him his faults. Tell him the Greek word here is for rebuke. Tell them that they have been doing something wrong. And then, this is the interesting part. Right here it says, between you and him alone. Notice it doesn't say, go tell someone else first. Did you see that? This is Jesus' words, by the way. This is a command. It doesn't say go tell someone else about it. It says that it's your job as a Christian who is also seeking holiness and fighting sin to go and talk to them about that sin that they did against you. We are to avoid spreading unnecessarily the knowledge of that person's sin. We are to seek the best for them. 
In fact, if you are the type of person to tell someone else about your problems with someone else, you are the one who's in sin. You're going against what Jesus said. If you're going to go tell someone else first that you've got a beef with somebody else, and then you go tell them, that means that you've gossiped. That means you've sinned. Jesus says here, go between you and him alone. If you've got the problem, go seek it out. See, this is the root of it. Jesus has reconciled us to his Father, has he not? He died on the cross for our sins. And as people who have been reconciled, we're called and commanded and, and, and are to seek reconciliation with other people. If we don't do that, it causes disunity within the body. And we can't be united. You can't be praying for unity at the same time you're gossiping. They That means your prayer means squat. It means it means nothing. In fact, you're in sin. So Jesus comes and he says, between you and him alone, Christians are people saved by God's grace. God sought us. He calls us. He cleans us up and he he made us his. He reconciled us to himself. And we're called to be agents of reconciliation. To do or, or anything else is to do the opposite. And you're participating in that incredibly evil sin called gossip. See, notice that this act is not about kicking someone out. It's about correcting. Why? Because you love that person. And you want them to grow in holiness. And you want them to fight sin. The person who has been sinned against is supposed to bring the matter to the perpetrator. This eases the hurt in the first person, but it also is a reminder of the passage above about Jesus who who sought the lost sheep, seeking to bring that person back into the right walk with God. We see this all the way back even in James. In James 5, 19 and 20, he says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him brings." Sorry, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a uh, multitude of sins. Next thing is this, is listens. If your brother sins against you, Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you see the outcome there? You gain a brother. What a wonderful thing, isn't it? You know, I thank God for the people that had the heart to come to me and say, you know, Nate, sometimes it's Pastor Nate. You know, I think this attitude in you is wrong. And here's how I see it. Those people who have done that out of a sense of love, not out of a sense of uh, dominion or, or oppression over someone, I, I'm, I'm close with them. They are my brothers. <coughs> And we grow together in these things. How often do we seek someone who has hurt us and all we want to do is for them to recognize that they've hurt us? But here it's about gaining a brother. Strengthening the bonds within the membership of the church. 
How different would the body of Christ be if we sought out to reconcile our relationships with our brothers and sisters? How different would it be? How does that affect our witness to this world? I was reminded about it again. In the States, there's a major rift between ethnicities, between black and white Christians, and they just, I, every, it's just bad. But you see what it's doing to their witness? People need to be reconciled. We need to be agents of those. Verse 16, we get to stage 2. And Jesus says this, if, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three. It's only if stage 1 doesn't work that you begin to bring other people into this. And we are still seeking that person. We still want them to be reconciled. We don't want them to go. We love them. We care for them. We want the best for them. And the best for them is to be reconciled. Let's think back to Deuteronomy 19. This is where it comes from. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. The parallel is not exact, but because in the Old Testament the witnesses are witnesses of the deed itself, here, though, the witnesses are witnessing the reproof. They're standing there with the brother or sister as they seek to reconcile their relationship watching the response of the person who sins. They're watching the reproof and the appeal for repentance. And if the person refuses to respond, or if they're uncooperative, but there's always a hope for repentance and restoration. And I hope you see the love that is coming out in this passage. I hope you see the importance of discipline as an act of love. Not as an act of one-upping. Not an act of, of, of putting a greater weight upon someone. Not an act of revenge. But in this middle stage, at the same time, we see that the process is still to reconcile. This stage happens before you get to the next stage, right? That's why it's a stage. You go stage one, stage two, then stage three. You can serve to bring the process to this third stage only if you do the second stage. See, in verse 17, we get to that third stage. It says this, if he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. When the offending person does not listen to the group, when he doesn't listen to the appeal, please, this, this is a sin, please correct it. Please seek repentance. Fight the sin. The matter is to be brought to the whole community. 
And the whole church pleads with that individual to repent and to turn away. It's our job, right? That's the point. This is what we talked about last week with membership. We're here to love each other and care for each other and build each other up. But then it comes to this amazingly harsh line here. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let that individual be someone who is not a Christian. Unrepented sin, habitual sin, is a sign of someone not having saving faith. The Bible is very clear on this. First John talks about this, the whole book. Remember, part of church membership is the body coming alongside of you and affirming God's saving grace in your life. This last stage is the church taking that away. How could you still love that sin more than your Savior? He died for you. He gave you free grace. How could you do that? Jesus regular, regu- but here, Jesus regularly treats Gentiles and tax collectors with remarkable compassion. Doesn't mean we get to be jerks. So again, compassion. We're still seeking for that person to be reconciled, but he does not treat them though as disciples if they aren't repenting. The removal of fellowship depicted here does not mean having no further contact with that person. Rather, it means not allowing them to retain positions reserved for Christians until they repent. See, if, if, if we've taken their church membership away and if we can no longer affirm that they are a Christian because of the fruit of their life, that means they need to hear the gospel, right? Where would they hear the gospel? if you kick them out of the place that should be preaching the gospel. We're talking about membership. Now, um, there's gray in this matter, okay? If someone, just to put it on a note, if someone is uh, being charged with habitual abuse of a spouse, that's, we're not talking about this here. That's another conversation. But we're talking about sin here as well. See, again, remember the parable of the lost sheep. See the parallel. We are to go and we are to seek that lost sheep. The members of our community who has gone wayward, we are to help each other to pursue holiness and to fight sin. But someone who refuses to pursue holiness and fight sin is to be viewed as someone who is unsaved until they repent. Then they are to be restored. See, verses 18 and 19 are interesting. I don't know, as I was reading this over and reflecting, I was flashed back to, I don't know how many prayer meetings I've heard this read. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth but about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my heavenly Father. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's a beautiful thing to read these verses, but it's also haunting at the same time. In verses 18 to 19 here, the application seems restricted to church discipline. 
refers to the process of, of ratifying God's will on earth by recognizing new Christians and disciplining those who are rebellious against Jesus. See, heaven is accord with the church's authority that is properly exercised in a healthy situation. But then in verse 20, this verse is actually applicable to church discipline. While Christ is present in even the smallest gathering of his people, the point in this context is that heaven is in accord with the believers who follow his instructions regarding church discipline. See, church discipline is everything the church does to help its members pursue holiness and to fight sin. So let's look back on Matthew 18. Jesus tells the church to practice church discipline in matters of unrepented sin. It's interesting. John MacArthur says this on church discipline. Jesus' instructions about church discipline in Matthew 18 are clear and unequivocal. The issue is therefore a good test of whether a church is serious about obedience to Christ. But, it is, these are my words, but it is not just to do it, but how. And the motive has to be always to restore. Because church discipline is everything the church does to help its members pursue holiness and to fight sin. We are to approach others about sin individually with an attitude that wants the best for them. It's pleading with them. It's being, re- it's, it's, it's just, I just want you to be reconciled to God. I love you. I want the best for you. So the New Testament commands corrective discipline. But it doesn't just talk about it here in Matthew 18. It also talks about it in 1 Corinthians Five, where it talks about not associating with other individuals who have been caught in sexual immorality. Or in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Or in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 to 15, where we are commanded not to hang out with idle people. The New Testament speaks about formative discipline. Our efforts to grow in holiness together and countless passages about pursuing holiness and building one another up in the faith, such as Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 32, or Philippians 2, verses 1 to 18. Church discipline is everything that church does to help its members pursue holiness and to fight sin. See, Hebrews 12 says this, verses 7 to 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And here's the question, rhetorical. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. Discipline isn't a negative. It's a positive We're seeking the best. We want the best. We want you to grow in Christ. We love you. So we're not going to let that slide. In all its awkwardness, we're going to approach you and say, look, I want to address something with you. So here are some questions that I think come up 
that we still need to think about. How quickly should a church act? Well, it's a slow process. It should never be done quickly. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, it says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. How should we interact with someone who has been disciplined? They should come and hear the gospel, should they not? But they should not be participating in the things that are left for those who are claimed to be Christians. When should a church restore someone from discipline? Restoration to fellowship occurs when there is repentance, and the character of repentance is dependent on the nature of the sin. Uh, Steph recently was reading a book called The Gospel as a House Key. As a House Key. Gospel as a House Key. Talking about um, hospitality and the importance hospitality is in our gospel witness, not only in the church, but also in our community. There's a whole chapter in there talking about how to address church discipline in the context of hospitality. So what? In college, I did some landscaping. I think it's good to do something where you get your hands nice and scarred. It was a good job. It was a hard job. Long hours, you know, 14, 15 hours. It taught me a lot, like the importance of hard work. It also taught me a lot about gardening and planting. We often had to plant trees. So you dig a giant hole, and since my boss was so cheap, he never bought any. He said, this is why I pay you guys. So we would lift it up and, and lift up this, depending upon the tree. They're heavy. Uh, and, and put it in the hole. And we would come and we'd fill in the dirt and we'd pack it down as much as we can and we would water it and so it soaked. Well, the problem is this. If we were to just walk away from that tree that we just planted, over time, if not fairly soon, the tree would begin to tilt. Because that young tree hadn't had the roots that it needed to keep itself propped it up. So we would stake it. We would put a stake in and tie the tree to that stake so that it would grow straight. You always see those trees that are like this. In our old house in Burlington, we had one that went like zigzag. It looked like, it looked like not only did it tilt, but then someone hit it with a lawnmower, and then it kind of just kept growing. <laughs> you know, think of discipline as a stake. That helps the tree grow upright. The extra set of wheels on the bicycle or the musician's endless hours of practice. Without discipline, we won't grow as God wants us to. With discipline, we will, by God's grace, bear peace, peaceful fruit in, of righteousness. The membership of a local church are Christians by calling and by their obedience to the call of Christ. They are the visible manifestation and the evidence of Christ. It is in an effect of our witness to this world if we aren't pursuing holiness and fighting sin. It taints it. I wonder what would have happened if my mom didn't take the time to discipline me because of my lack of doing my schoolwork. Really, it was laziness. 
I know my mom loves me because of the investment she has taken in my life to correct wrong behavior. As a church, we're called to do the same. Not because we want to place a heavy yoke on someone, but because we love them. And we want, the, we want them to pursue holiness and to fight sin, but also it affects our witness as a local church in our community. We want to make much of Christ. Church discipline is everything that church does to help its members pursue holiness and to fight sin. It's a weighty subject. I'm not going to lie, I've gone through this process as a pastor. Not fun. It is not something we look forward to. But it's something we're commanded to do. And it's done out of a sense of love for that individual. And also out of a sense of love for Christ. Because we want to make much of him. Let us continue to make much of him together as a family.